True crime as a genre has exploded in the last few years. Killers and even victims have passionate followings and even fans. But are we vandalizing the soul of memory when we talk about the aftermath, the final days of a victim's life, and we distill an entire life down to what happened to them and the headlines generated from that person's murder? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join us. We're crossing the line. So, Christina Everett, how are you today? I am good, Phelps. How are you? I'm okay. I saw just recently, I think it was this morning, a former nurse in Texas was sentenced to death for the murders of four patients. So, I think that's a good day for justice when someone gets the death penalty for taking, you know, four lives. So although I'm not an advocate for the death penalty, it's a sentence. That's what the jury sentenced that person to. What's up with you? So I actually just got done binging a few hours of TV. Everyone's favorite fictional serial killer is coming back. Dexter Phelps, you did a little work on that show a while back, right? Yeah. It actually has something to do with what we're discussing on the episode today that I can go into in a bit. Oh, cool. Yeah. So the revival, it's called Dexter New Blood. It's premiering this Sunday on Showtime. And I actually got some advanced screeners and I got a chance to watch the first four episodes already. There's going to be 10 total this season. But first off, I just want to say that I do not like reboots and revivals whatsoever. They're usually bad and or unnecessary. But I'll admit that once in a while, like, Hollywood does get it right. And I will say that Dexter New Blood gets it right. I think we can all agree that the original ending was maybe the worst finale ever made in history. But from what I've seen so far, this show redeems itself while giving us some fresh new material. Wow. No spoilers, but Dexter is living this new life. He's got a new identity. He's living in this fictional town in upstate New York. He hasn't killed in since his days in Miami, but let's just say old habits die hard. We do get to see a lot of familiar faces. Deb, Dexter's sister, plays a pivotal role. We meet his teenage son, Harrison, which raises a really interesting question of whether nature versus nurture will have him following in his father's footsteps. Overall, I think it's worth a watch. I don't think you need to have seen the original show to know what's going on now. But there are some fun callbacks that OG fans, I think, will enjoy seeing. Moving on from fictional world, what about the real world? What about you, Phelps? Anything catch your attention this week? So Lyft promised to publish a safety report about two years ago. They didn't. And what everybody's talking about right now is that since 2019... 1,807 sexual assaults occurred in their cars, in addition to four assaults resulting in fatalities. That's horrifying. What's horrifying is taking two years to release the data because people should be informed in order to make a decision. I know plenty of women who have used Lyft and Uber and those types of services. I mean, I'm scared for people getting in those cars who can't protect themselves. It's terrifying because I actually switched over exclusively to use Lyft after Uber was having so many of their own problems. Oh, my God. So now knowing this, it's kind of like, what's the option? You know, I've looked into it since that report came out just to see, like, what can I do when I need to 
use these kinds of apps. Interestingly enough, both Uber and Lyft have safety features on the app that you can use to share your location with a number of your personal contacts. Oh, so it's not like a gun that comes out of a glove compartment in the back? Yeah. No, Uh. nothing that much. I will say that I personally have used other apps and have it connected with my best friends when I'm going certain places so that they can track my location. There's apps like Noonlight, Covert Alert, Life360. They all do various things, but they connect to your own personal contacts, and some of them can show tracking in real-time GPS. Some of them can contact the authorities if you push certain buttons or say certain things. So if you're going to use a ride-sharing app, I suggest using one of those other free apps to at least protect yourself. I'm down with that. We're in this time where we're using these apps to get around, you know, especially in big cities like New York, you know, we rely on these kind of cars. And so it's a really frustrating and upsetting thing to know about. Ev, you don't use the little scooters? I picture you using the little scooters to get around the city. Hell no. No. (laughs) God, no. I'd rather walk. There are certain things that I'll do on my own when I take those kinds of rides, you know, first make sure it's the right car, check the license plate, ask the driver to confirm your name and your destination that you entered in the app. Don't sit in the front seat. I'll go as far as taking a picture of their driver certificate that's usually up on one of those plaques on the back of their seat. So it's at least in my phone. And don't fall asleep. If you're tired or if you are drunk, drunk, Put the window down, put your head out the window, get some fresh air, but do not fall asleep and make sure you are following the route that the driver is taking so you are going in the right direction. And another safer thing to do would be to just to have the can of mace ready when you're in the car. Just white knuckle it to your destination. That's where we are today. Let's move on and get to a topic I've thought a lot about. And it's one of those elephant in the room subjects within the true crime genre, nobody really wants to delve in too deeply. Okay, let's hear it. Are we vandalizing the soul of memory when we talk about the aftermath, the final days of a victim's life, and we distill an entire life down to what happened to them and the headlines generated from that person's murder? You know, I worry about how fine of a line this really is and how close to crossing it we come within the true crime space, especially how popular it is today. I think that's a fair question to ask. I think it's relatable for a lot of true crime fans who forget that there is a person at the heart of the story and don't realize that it's a person that has interests just like you and me and has relatives and has a favorite food and has dreams, goals. Yeah. And I think that once we see so much of it filtered through a certain lens in the media, it's very easy to get lost in that and see things as just stories. You're in the living room watching and it's like, what if I'm the family member of the the person who's dead on the screen? Right. I have really an interesting story to tell here in respect to this. So I was hired before Dexter started airing as a consultant and they hired me to create a contest for Dexter and create some crime scenes. And they came to me and they said, our idea is to, in every major city across the United States, you know, the big ones, Chicago, Miami, LA, New York, is to have a semi-tractor trailer truck with glass enclosed and have a crime scene inside with a victim and a famous serial killer who killed that person 
maybe be five serial killers, Gacy, all these people. And then you guess which serial killer committed the crime and your name goes into a pool to win a car. And it was all a promotion for the show. Interesting. Yeah. I said to them, I said, you're going to put inside of a semi a real victim of a real serial killer and you're going to create a contest around it? No. There's a disconnect because why do it on real events for a fictional show? Point number one. Point number two, I said, you're going to get sued up the ass by somebody for this. I said, why don't you make Dexter the killer? And promote your own show. And promote your own show. And they're, wow, awesome idea, Phelps. So that's what we ended up doing. I mean, that falls in line with people forget that there are real people behind these stories. You know, I think it's part of the infotainment trend, right, of all these documentaries that we watch, these docu-series, these scripted shows where you watch it for entertainment. And just like any other show, you kind of just hit pause on your own life and get wrapped up in what you're watching. And you forget that what you're watching is real and it's actually like someone else's trauma. People, I think, comment on docuseries the same way they might comment on a scripted primetime show. That's very important to say. Yeah. And I think it's because I think a lot of the times the focus is on the killer because it's... It's sexier. It's sexier. There's some voyeurism and just seeing what this other sinister life is like that many of us are not familiar with. This one dude from the University of Georgia School of Law, Ashton Williams, in June 2020 published, I guess it's a white paper, it's a research paper, and the title is Shockingly Evil, The Cruel, Invasive Appropriation and Exploitation of Victims' Rights of Publicity in the True Crime Genre. And I bet not a lot of people who watch these shows have read this article, so- Why don't you read a couple of the quotes from it, Everett, and then we'll talk about some of this because it's harsh. Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting information in this. There's one section that I found really interesting. It says, all states should recognize a uniform right of publicity, which protects victims and victims' family members' rights in true crime media. The creation of such a universal right will help to prevent further suffering upon those who have already experienced unbelievable trauma. The huge rise in popularity of the true crime genre has left many individuals who suffered at the hands of killers and criminals without any sort of remedy to prevent the commercialization of the tales of the fates of themselves or their loved ones. You know, and this is, as he goes on to say in the article, despite protests from family members of the victims, right? And then he accuses directors, producers, and actors of reaping profits while the real victims are left reliving their most painful moments and watching their stories publicized or retold for the world to watch. So look, I can speak from this from a victim's perspective because my sister-in-law's picture was on the front page of a major newspaper, the Hartford Current, and she was grouped in with 12 additional, quote, prostitutes, end quote, but she had never been charged with prostitution in her life. Jeez. So what they did was there was a the Asylum Hill killer, a serial killer, was killing sex workers. And what they did was put a map up of the Asylum Hill in Hartford, and they put their pictures up where all these girls were killed. And they grouped her in. And they grouped her in there. That's awful. And because she was murdered along his route, he didn't kill her, mm-hmm. but, but they grouped her in. When that appeared in the Hartford Current, my niece, my brother's daughter, was horrified by that. 
And how old were the kids when that came out in the paper? My niece was 16. The other kids were a lot younger. She was 16, so it was very relevant to her as being in high school. That's a tough enough time already. My brother was absolutely horrified. And then her mother, his mother-in-law, was just, they could not believe their eyes when they saw this article with her picture. If we're going to do it, you should get it right, number one. Number two, you should get permission from the victim's families. It only takes a call. Hey, listen, we're running an article. We're going to put her picture in there. We think Mm -hmm. it's important. How do you feel about that? Well, no, she's not a prostitute. That's a quote from The Current. So my situation really is unique in that I'm also a person on the other side of the coin, a true crime content creator who makes his living in the genre. Right. You've done a lot of documentaries and series on television. My full-time work. That's what I do, right? I make my living off a true crime. And I believe that you said that your sister-in-law's murder came long before you ever became a true crime author or TV personality or anything like that, right? Yeah. So it wasn't kind of an impetus for me to get into the genre, but getting into the genre, of course, I could then use it as something to empathize with victims' families. Reading this article, I sense part of the underlying pretense of this especially a few passages, is driven really by bitterness and scorn for the genre as a whole. That this scholar, he has some sort of ax to grind here with the true crime genre. Now, when I first started writing in the genre, and even really today, true crime section in the bookstore is in the back, (laughs) on the bottom, by the toilet. That's where you find the true crime books, okay? And so I was never taken seriously as a writer. And here's the funny thing. I would spend a year and a half on a book, investigate my ass off, reveal all these new revelations about a case, right? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't get reviewed by anybody. Because it was just slapped with the true crime label. Right. And then therefore there's all these preconceived notions about what it's about. James B. Stewart would write a murder book. And because he wrote for the New Yorker, the New York Times, whatever, they'd label it nonfiction crime. Interesting. I feel like that's similar to being a true crime fan like me. I think now it's a little bit more accepted, but definitely back in the day, it was... Red and black, blood and guts. Yeah, and you didn't really say it out loud because people just associate that that means I love murder and gore and pain and darkness. And it's like, no, no, I actually just, I'm interested in the mystery and solving these crimes. And I like investigating. And I think now, I guess, because it's so much more of a part of pop culture, it's a little bit more acceptable to discuss. And so you can read a true crime book on the subway again. Is that what you're saying? Right. You don't have to hide it. I'm not hiding the cover like in a magazine or anything like that. I think getting back to the point of this episode, I think if we're going to go down this road, right, you have to include news accounts as well. Right. Because news today, they lead with murder stories and Mm -hmm. they go beyond reporting the facts. You're talking about TV ratings specifically. Yeah, like local news. They sensationalize any big murder stories. Not not the inner city urban murder cases. Not at all. Right. Those are like, oh, there's another homicide in Hartford. But- Jennifer Dulos gets killed in New Canaan, Connecticut, and all of a sudden, there's special segments on this case. Right. And we know why. We know why. She's pretty. Pretty. She's young. Rich. White. Right. 
living in suburbia. You know, for those who don't know the Jennifer Dulos case in Connecticut, Mama Five disappeared in May 2019 after dropping her kids off at school one morning. Her body still hasn't been found. It's believed she was murdered inside of her garage by her husband, Fotis Dulos. I watched it unfold here in Connecticut on the Daily News, and it was any little tiny break in the case, and there was a five-minute segment on the local news. I mean, they have airspace to fill, right? And they have to fill it so many hours in the day. So it's like they have to repeat it over and over until something new comes around. So, right. right. You know, and unfortunately, media is driven by money and viewership. And so it's like this constant drive to get more viewers. And you have to sell things in a different way to get those people to listen and watch. My point is, if we're going to go down the road, as the writer of this article does, Mm -hmm. of producers, networks doing true crime, you know, we have to now include this because the news people are doing it as well. So where is the line then? Where does news end and using someone else's suffering for entertainment begin? I mean, that's what we're trying to get to the bottom of, I think. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll dig into more when we get back. To play devil's advocate, we should also talk about what good comes out of the study of true crime. There is a reason that people become fascinated by it, especially women. Personally, I'm interested because I feel like it's partly a way to protect myself. Makes you feel safer. It does. You know, I feel like by watching these stories, by seeing how some people might get attacked, it can help me maybe make different decisions when I'm in a similar situation. Sure. I get it. It's not like I'm prepared for a serial killer to come attack me, but at the same time, it makes me much more aware of my surroundings. Right. I'm not like walking around in constant fear, but I'm also not naive and I'm not just walking with my head down in my phone, not aware of my surroundings, you know? And so when I'm aware of certain things that happen, whether it be in real life, in a news story about a woman who gets abducted off the street in broad daylight, or if it's a scripted show, I consume that because it makes me at least feel comforted that I would hope that I can survive and fight back, but I at least have like that confidence that like, I'm going to try my damnedest to get out of this situation. And if somebody else could do it, I'm going to use that as inspiration to protect myself. I think that's a common comment from women who watch true crime or... Don't get me wrong here. I mean, we are not here to victim blame whatsoever. You know, this is just about getting the right tools as a woman to feel safe and to protect ourselves. And there's just like certain things that as women that we all do that I'm realizing in these days that men don't necessarily know about, like walking to my car in a garage with keys between my hands. So I'm prepared if anyone comes up behind me, I could protect myself. Always telling my girlfriends, text me when you get home. You know, you never hear a group of guys saying that when they say goodbye to each other after the bar. Making sure I look over my shoulder every few steps. If I hear anything, I look over my shoulder. There are things that are so subtle that as women, I feel like we forget that we're doing it to protect ourselves. And it might be picked up from these things that I watch. But, you know, some could argue that studying true crime has saved lives for this very reason. 
Take the Night Stalker case, Richard Ramirez. There was a docuseries about him earlier this year. If it weren't for all those splashy headlines in the news about all the crimes that he was doing in the 80s, like he would have never been caught and chased down by this entire neighborhood in L.A. who was out on the lookout for him. There was some graphic images in that docuseries, and people were really pissed about that. I remember. Yeah. Oh, people on Twitter were going crazy because... Because they can? Because, because you could say anything on the internet, sure. But I think it's, you know, people were mad that that docuseries was showing photos of the victims, full-length images of their faces. And it was it was uncomfortable for some people who might not be used to that. After all this time, now they're pissed. After everything that everybody's seen on TV with graphic images of the most violent crimes imaginable, that pisses people off. Well, I mean, I don't think that there have been that many documentaries and docuseries that show images that are that graphic. You might see the camera start from the waist down and pan down to the feet in a pool of blood, but you don't often see full victims' faces in these kinds of series about killers. But beyond that, the reenactments. When you're reenacting something, that's a real victim you're reenacting. And I've seen throats slit, everything else in reenactments. And you could say, well, those are actors, but that's still a real victim they're reenacting. But take it from a viewer. They see an actor. They see an actor playing a role. So again, they see this throat slash. And that's okay, but the real picture's not okay. But just because that's of a real scenario, seeing actors do it, I feel like it kind of just registers as, well, that's the same as what happened on How to Get Away with Murder. That happens on Dexter. Suddenly, when you see actors portraying this, it becomes a scripted story. Oh, my God. They're taking aback by it. They're pissed off at it. Suddenly, it's a real person. I think people are upset because they're just not used to seeing that. And I personally was okay with seeing that because Richard Ramirez did some awful things. And... If you don't see how bad his crimes were, how bad his murders were. That's a good point. You know, you're going to glamorize him. If you're going to dive into the bloody pool of Richard Ramirez, you should see it all, right? Right. And the docuseries does make a point at the end to show how ridiculous it got with his popularity in the media. While there were people on the lookout for him, there were also people basically fangirling for him and running after him in the police car, treating him like he was this rock star. And I think they purposely showed that and then showed the heinous crimes that he did so that you as a viewer can be like, oh, no, he's not cool. He did this. I think the type of media matters. Right. We're talking films, documentaries, podcasts, and then there's YouTube, of course. Mm -hmm. And now there's TikTok, true crime. Uh, True crime is just exploding. Everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. My thought is this. Since there has not been any sense of how high the bar is, the issue becomes how high can we take it? So the bar keeps rising. Right. And and there's, there's some pushback on the bar to push it back down with these images, right? But you make a good point by saying, well, look, if you're going to see it, let's see it all. Let's really see what happened. And it's going to explain what kind of monster Richard Ramirez truly is. But now how high can the bar go? I've seen every single type of graphic murder scene imaginable. And there's one that blew my mind 
crime scene photos that were the worst things I've ever seen in my life that have never made it on television, should never make it on television. And that's the case of Lisa Montgomery, a book I wrote, Murder in the Heartland. She cut a baby out of a living woman and the 911 call of the mother showing up to find her daughter on the floor said, I think my daughter's stomach exploded. So those pictures should never be shown to anybody. Nobody should ever see that. And I know the family would just be horrified if those pictures were ever shown. Right. And I mean, that's a good segue, I think, into discussing permission from the family. You know, like how does the family see how their loved one is depicted in media? Let's talk about that a minute. I don't make excuses for violence or using real victims' names. I'm only trying to be honest here. I mean, I'm involved in this on every level, on production, writing, I'm in it. I don't do a case unless I get permission from the family first of the murder victims. Well, one thing that's really interesting that this paper did note, and I didn't realize, was that that show Mindhunter on Netflix, it's based on the FBI profilers John E. Douglas and Robert Redzler. It dramatizes the real-life events and the work that they did tracking down some serial killers like BTK and Charles Manson and a bunch of others. What's interesting is in this piece, it points out that those main characters went by fake names in the show. And they had fake storylines, different family drama than the real people. Right. But what's really messed up is that the show didn't do that to the victims. You know, season two focused on the Atlanta child murders in the late 70s. And unlike the fake names of the lead characters, they actually used the real names, the identities, the events of all the murders that occurred. None of the families were contacted and asked about this, right? It says, quote, none of the families, including those whose full names appear in the series, were ever consulted regarding their representation. Without so much as a warning, the parents and family members of the victims are forced to be subjected to media representation of their loved one's deaths. See, now that's crossing the line. That's messed up. I didn't realize that. You worked on Paper Go season one and two with me, and both of those podcasts were done only with the consent of the victim's families. I would have not done either of those cases. I would have not done any of the 42 true crime books I've written without the family saying it's fine. Ultimately, it's about them, right? So to do this without consulting them, I think it is just, wow. Let's say in that case, right, the Atlanta murders, everyone knows about it. The victim's names are out there. So they must have approached it as it's news, but they must have worked hand in hand with the FBI profilers and But you I, I hesitate to say you have to bring morality into it. You have to bring some Absolutely. sort of heart into it. You have to bring care, empathy, sympathy. All of that has to go into this because ultimately it's just a TV show. That's all that is. The other part of it is it's real life for people. It's their fucking lives. And people don't get that because if you're going to fictionalize the lead characters, then therefore the viewer is now seeing the victims as fictional characters too. Where are the ethics in this? And a lot of the viewers, they don't care about names. No. They want the story told to them and they want to be entertained. Another part of the article that was interesting says... Directors and producers seize this opportunity to captivate the country with the tales of these crimes because the criminals themselves are incapable of profiting. Since criminals lose the rights to their images, 
there is no need for filmmakers or other content creators to get these criminals' permission. Unfortunately, under most of the current state laws, these content creators also do not necessarily need to get permission from the criminals' victims. The gap in protection is harmful. And I mean, this explains a lot about what we're seeing already in films and docu-series. How many more documentaries do we need to see on Ted Bundy? I never really followed the Ted Bundy case at all. I watched some of the Ted Bundy tapes only because Joe Berlinger is a friend, colleague. We work together and I respect him as a, as a true crime director. But I've never been interested in Bundy, to be honest with you. Joe Berlinger also directed that scripted film with Zac Efron about Ted uh, Bundy, the extremely wicked, wicked, shockingly evil and vile, which right. the writer for this article gets kind of his title from. I totally get the fascination with Bundy, with Gacy, with Dahmer, with all of these people, right? I get right. it. I totally get it. Bundy's an extremely unique serial killer, as is Dahmer, Gacy, the big names, if you will. There's actually another film about Bundy that came out recently, and it was skewed from a, a different point of view. Right. No Man of God. It was Elijah Wood and Luke Kirby from Mrs. Maisel playing right. Ted Bundy, which is really interesting. I haven't had a chance to to watch it, but... Will you watch it? Will, I will. you watch yet another Ted Bundy movie? I absolutely would. Okay. Because this one is about the relationship between the FBI analyst Bill Hagmeyer and their really close relationship that they had during the end of Ted Bundy's life. I'm going to pitch a movie about Bundy from the car dealer who sold him the Volkswagen. I'm going to skew it from that point of view. <laughs> I mean, I th I would watch it because Bundy's case is just interesting to me from start to finish. And I think there hasn't been a take on this relationship that he built with this FBI analyst. And to me, what's interesting is how this FBI analyst was able to build this relationship with a serial killer and get the answers that he did. And from their conversations, he was able to find out more identities of victims that they weren't even aware of. Ted Bundy was able to give them information on his own psyche that helped them catch other serial killers. Those are all good points you made about the cop, but I don't think we need another movie about it. Fair. But I mean, Hollywood is also running out of ideas for everything, aren't they? Yeah. And true crime now is the heyday. So it's like, let's pile it on. You know, I mean, when Burlinger released the Bundy tapes, the Zac Efron movie came out, I believe, at the same time on Netflix. So he had two yeah. movies about Bundy at the same time on the same network. What is it about this guy? I don't understand. I mean, it's just enough is enough is enough. I mean, he was a good looking guy, I hate to admit. And there is a reason why they cast Zac Efron to play him. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of when I would talk about Fotis Dulos, the Jennifer Dulos case. Her husband? Yeah, I would speak to different females about it. And one mm -hmm. of the first things they would always say is, and he was such a good looking guy, Fotis. And it's kind of strange to me that when a serial killer or a killer is good looking, they get more attention. I mean, it's not sexy to have an ugly serial killer. You're not going to want to show him on the nightly news over and over. But John Wayne Gacy was not a good looking guy, I would say. I don't True. know. Dahmer, was he good looking? I don't know. No, but, you know, their stories were outrageous. and Their stories spoke for themselves. Compared to Bundy's, you know, they stand out a little bit more. Bundy's, I think, got the notoriety because he was a good looking guy. I just remember when I think of Bundy, I think of the guy from NCIS who played Bundy. Uh, <laughs> Pam Dauber's husband there, Mark Harmon. Really? Oh. So Mark Harmon 
from NCIS. Mm-hmm. He played Bundy in like the 80s in a movie called The Deliberate Stranger. That's the image I think of when I think of Bundy. And this generation is going to think of Zac Efron. Like right. at this point, who hasn't played Ted Bundy? Yeah, I haven't. I'd like <laughs> to play. I'd like to play Bundy. Well, the weird thing about Bundy also is that he's one of those guys that his look changed so easily. He looked like a different person all the time. Okay, it's funny you say that. And here's the thing about that. I've interviewed survivors of serial killers. Mm-hmm. And each one of those survivors told me this. He was over my house or we were at the party or we were in the car, whatever the situation was. He left and when he came back, he looked like a different person. Mm. So the psychopath has a way of when they get into the part of the tape in their mind that they now want to play and become that killer, their whole look changes. Their whole aura changes for sure. And look, we talk about all this, but I am very guilty of putting a serial killer on television every week. I put a real live serial killer on my show, Dark Minds, Happy Face Killer. But what I did and what we decided to do was we gave him a code name and we never said who he was and we disguised his voice. So he didn't come on the show as Happy Face Killer. He came on the show as, drumroll, Raven. I didn't come up with the name. The head of Investigation Discovery came up with that name. So it was a way to like not glamorize him. Exactly. Exactly. That is a really good idea. So that sounds like a good place to take a quick break. We'll be right back. So the show was like Silence of the Lambs. I was Clarice. He was Hannibal. And I would go to him for advice on the case I was looking at. But... Here's this live serial killer on TV every week. Right. I mean, that's over the top. That's pushing the bar. And you were behind that. And I was behind. I came up with the idea. I created Ah. the show. (laughs) And what I want to do now is I just want to push this for one minute back to if the victim's families are not cool with any of this stuff, you just don't do it. Yeah, they, they need to be involved. There needs to be a discussion. I mean, do these victims' families want again to see this case on a new show called The Killer Surfer or The Killer This or The Deadly That or whatever. And even when you get permission, you told me the story the other day that it's not always easy. I spoke to the mother of the murder victim for a book and I interviewed her. Mm -hmm. And five, six, seven years after the book comes out, I start getting calls from the brother of the victim in the middle of the night, he's calling me and leaving me, you know, the the four minute voicemails, the limit over Uh-oh. and over and over again. And there are rants about how he's coming after me. He's going to get oh, me. God. And then it stopped for a couple of years. Then he comes oh. back a couple months ago and calls me to say, you know what? You're the reason why my mother had a stroke. And oh, no, I think I'm coming to Connecticut, quote, to give you a hug. Do not hug him. So. I said to him, look, you're free to come to Connecticut. No. And the two Rottweilers that I have would love to <laughs> hug you. He's just going to bring dog treats. No, <laughs> this is, you need to get more deadbolts or something. That's not cool. Or a bigger gun. No. Okay. That's another episode where I'm not even going to go there. But, you know, I mean, this whole concept of infotainment these days is really interesting because especially given the fact that we've been stuck inside in the pandemic for 
Let's give everybody a fucking break. Watch as much true crime as you want to. I'll tell you that right now. I mean, people are looking for an escape from our scary-ass reality. And unfortunately, that escape is somebody else's scary-ass reality. You know, the problem is that viewers don't understand that there are families of victims that still have to live through that trauma no matter how many years and decades later. So there is a fine line, and it's just a matter of how we do or don't cross it. Now that we've spoken about all this, like, what do you think other true crime content creators should take away from this discussion? I think it's clear. I think the article's clear, and I think my proposal is clear. Just contact the victim's families. See how they feel. It just comes down to having a little respect. That's it. So that takes care of this week. And we'll see you all next week where we have a actual murder case. Sources for today's episode come from the Georgia Law Journal of Intellectual Property Law called Shockingly Evil, The Cruel Invasive Appropriation and Exploitation of Victims' Rights of Publicity in the True Crime Genre, an Entertainment Daily article called The Ripper on Netflix, and a 2019 article by Crystal Bailey from First Coast News. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Special thanks to our producer, Catherine Law, and audio engineer, Brandon Dickert. Research is by Marissa Brown. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.